Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? What's going on, everyone? It's been about a month since we uploaded last, and real short update. There's a good reason why. Uh, I ended up getting COVID, and I felt really miserable, so I missed a lot of work, and then I had to catch up on the work. And now, for the most part, I'm caught up on work, and we can start doing episodes again. So, in today's episode, if you remember last I was going to say last week, but last month, really, we ended out uh, talk, ended up talking about marriage in a small mini-series about biblical marriage, biblical divorce, and biblical, biblical singleness. Pretty much saying, like, what does that look like? What does the Bible say on that? Today's episode is on the second part, which is going to be biblical divorce. What does biblical divorce look like? Now, number one, I highly encourage you, if you did not, go back and listen to the last episode on biblical marriage because... Biblical marriage really sets up what God intended for us. And you're going to hear some bits and pieces probably in this podcast from the last episode. So if you heard the last episode, some of this stuff might sound familiar because I really want to lay a baseline down for the people that maybe are just clicking on this episode and they've never listened before. They just saw this is a podcast about divorce. Maybe you're going through a divorce or maybe you're having a rough time or maybe you have friends or family that are going through divorce and you just want to see what the Bible says on this and what kind of godly wisdom that you can give them. And that's my hope for today's episode is that we just see plain and clear what does the Bible say on divorce. Once again, and I can't stress it enough, Before you really look at divorce, you need to understand what God's intent was in marriage. And long story short of last episode, really, God's view of marriage is essentially one man, one woman, they come together and they become one flesh. And then Jesus even adds, what God has brought together, let no man separate. Very clear. But nevertheless, because of our sinful nature, because of our hardness of heart, God has given us a biblical way to get divorced. Now, I want to be really cautious when I'm talking about this topic, once again, because I know it's sensitive for some, and I know some can take what I'm saying here highly out of context, and I don't want you to do that. So first and foremost, I want you to make sure that you are studying these verses that we go over on your own. You're doing your own studies in this. You're not going to just take what I said and then make some decisions based off that. You need to get in and study this for yourself. You need to pray over it, especially, like I said at the beginning, if you are going through a divorce, you've been divorced, or no matter what the story is, how you've been affected by it, study this for yourself. With all that being said, we are now going to get into our topic of divorce and what the Bible says about it. Now, first, I want to point out, uh, throughout the Old Testament, we saw how serious God took the institution of marriage. Uh, Even the laws, the the laws that you read about in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all these others, the, the laws that we're talking about, the crime of committing adultery, which is sleeping with someone that is not your spouse while you're married, that was punishable by death. While the crime of sexual immorality, which is pretty much two people who are not married to anyone sleeping together, that was only punishable by flogging. So you see the seriousness of what cheating on your wife was through the old laws during that dispensation in time. So we're going to go ahead and start in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, 
verses 13 through 16. And honestly, this passage right here is one of the strongest passages, in my opinion, of how we can see how exactly how God views divorce. Uh, specifically speaking, because we want to keep this in context, this is God speaking through his prophet Malachi, and he's addressing the priests, the priests that would go up and offer sacrifice and offer their worship. And these priests' worship was being denied. We're going to get into that in this verse, and we go over why. We go over why. So starting at verse 13, it reads like this, Malachi chapter 2, 13 through 16. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So in other words, these priests are coming up to the altar and they're crying and they're trying to offer worship to God and God doesn't care and God doesn't accept their worship. Well, why? We're about to get that answer. In verse 14, he says, yet you say for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. All right, so what is going on here? Essentially, the these priests were going off and marrying. They were divorcing their wives and marrying pagan women and marrying Gentile women, if you want to word it a different way. But essentially, they were divorcing their wives and marrying these pagan women. Needless to say, God was not pleased with that. Now, let's continue on. I'm going to pick it back from verse 14 because verse 15 has some very deep meanings here. So verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously. In other words, you divorced and you divorced probably in the worst type of way. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, but not one has done so who has the remnant, who has a remnant of the spirit. Not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. So in other words, you divorce your wife, who is your companion and your wife by covenant, meaning you have a covenant with each other. This goes back to something I was talking about last week, where you made a covenant. When you sign that marriage piece of paper there, and this is why I get on Christians, as I was saying, that, that, that want to not have a ceremony, not get a legal marriage, you're signing a piece of paper. That piece of paper is more than just a piece of paper. That is a covenant between you and your wife. And when you have that ceremony and you say those vows to each other and you are agreeing to be there for each other for the rest of your life with God as your witness, making vows, that is your covenant to your spouse. And you broke that off. You broke that covenant because you saw something new, something different, something that was making you lust after somebody else. You're, you were desiring something else other than your wife. You dealt with her treacherously. And verse 15 really implies, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. It really implies that if you were actually a true follower of God, if you had the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't have done these things. That's what this verse, verse 15, is really implying to me in this first part. Let's continue on in verse 15, and we'll pick it back up from the beginning. But not one has done so who has the remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? 
Take heed then in your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Read that again. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. This is God saying he hates divorce. He hates it. I, it. This is so plain and simple on how God views divorce. And I'm trying to back away from the mic because I'm getting kind of pumped up right now. But it says plain and clear, God hates divorce. And he continues on. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, there's a Bible teacher named John MacArthur, because I was really curious about this, him who covers his garment with wrong. I think I understood what the analogy or the illustration was, but I saw a, a quote from uh, Bible teacher John MacArthur on this, and he said this, th this covering your garment with wrong, this is an illustration akin to a person who pretty much you know, just murdered somebody and the blood splatters all over their hands and it's all over their clothes, but yet they can walk right into a church building and try to worship God and praise God. And they got the blood of their actions, unrepentant, don't feel bad about it all over them. God's not going to accept that worship. Go back to what David said in Psalm 51, one of my favorite Psalms at the end. He said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Just before that, he said, you do not delight yourself in the blood of burnt offerings and all these other things, these superficial things. What the Lord truly wants is a broken heart and a broken and contrite spirit. In other words, he wants to know that you are remorseful, not just remorseful, but you feel horrible about what you've done. And specifically right here, talking about divorce, these priests who divorce their wives to marry the next new shiny object decided to keep praising God as if nothing was wrong. And they felt no remorse. They felt no guilt. They felt no conviction. That's probably the best word right there. They felt no conviction for what they did. And God clearly says he doesn't accept that worship. There's a lot of truths that we can apply today from this Old Testament passage. But the number one thing that I want you to take out of this is that God hates divorce. But nevertheless, as I said in the beginning, God knew our hardness of hearts. He knows we have fallen flesh. So he actually gave us a biblical guideline for divorce. Now, I'm going to go over that because it's very important to see what the Bible says about it. Sadly, today, you see so many churches that will, will swing in one direction and say, no divorce ever. Never, ever, ever get divorced. Divorce is bad. Divorce is wrong. If you get divorced, you're going to hell or something like that. The fact of the matter is, is the Bible doesn't say that. But then you swing the pendulum the other way. And you'll see some churches that won't even acknowledge divorce. They won't talk about it. Maybe they'll give, you know, a little cheesy prayer on it. They'll never teach it. They'll never talk about it. They'll never do anything on it. And when divorce happens in their church, maybe they'll try to offer some counseling or something. But at the end of the day, they don't do anything about it. I've been in churches where couples have unbiblically divorced. And then those couples then come together. If you understand what I'm saying, you, you know, you have two couples, they'll get a divorce and then they'll end up going to other people who have been divorced in that church and get remarried. 
And this is all done in an unbiblical way, mind you. This is sad, but this happens. And the church will say nothing about it. Why? I don't know. Maybe they're afraid of losing offering money. Maybe they're afraid of losing members. Or maybe they're just afraid that they might offend somebody. But the fact of the matter is, is the Bible is clear. And that gets into the topic of church discipline, which is actually coming in two more episodes. Because like I said, the next one, we're going to talk about singleness. And then after that, we're going to get into church discipline. Because oftentimes, if a proper church is following through uh, when they see an unbiblical divorce, they're going to exercise church discipline. And that covers a whole nother area. And like I said, that's for two episodes from now. I'm not going to get too deep into it. But sadly, like I said, you see those two different sides. Either they instantly condemn you and kick you out of the church because you got a divorce no matter what the situation was, or they do absolutely nothing about it besides maybe say a prayer or something like that. But the church won't execute any discipline on it whatsoever. Now, with that in mind, the reason why this is so important, I've, if you didn't know, I'm in the military, so I travel all the time. I'm always uprooting myself, me and my wife, and we are moving every three years. And one of the tasks that we have to do everywhere we go is find a new church. So I've experienced so many different churches throughout my walk and throughout all these churches, even in the church that I grew up in. You know how many times I heard a sermon on what a godly marriage looks like? I've heard one, maybe two. I say maybe two because I think I heard one when I was really young, but I was very young, so I can't remember too well. You want to know how many times I heard a sermon on what biblical divorce looks like? Zero. I have never in my life, unless I went and searched YouTube, but from a local church that I've been attending, I have never once heard in 36 years a message on what biblical divorce looks like. So if your church has a divorce problem, if you're a pastor listening to this, I'm I'm trying not to, no, I probably am offending you. I don't care if I am, because at the end of the day, if your church has a problem with divorce, you should probably preach on it. And if you are good on you, keep doing that and exercise yourself in church discipline. But if you are not preaching on it and you are not giving a godly message on what the Bible says on divorce, expect divorce to keep running rampant inside your church. Expect more divorces to happen, more church drama to happen, all the way to the point where you're just like some of those churches in the book of Revelation and God is just, he's out of there. He wants nothing to do with it. At the end of the day, it's this, divorce is not a good thing. God hates divorce. But at the same time, as we're going through this, I want you to really understand this. Though God does give us these outlines for divorce, I want you to know that I truly believe based off everything that you read in the Bible, that number one, forgiveness should be given. Does that always mean you have to uh, stop the divorce? No, but forgiveness should be given. Number two, sometimes even though maybe you meet the letter of the word criteria of a divorce, is that truly the right answer at that time? I truly believe that God would rather you reconcile your marriage and come together again in understanding and in his word with a God-centered marriage than to automatically flip to a divorce. And we're going to kind of touch up on that topic as we do. I mean, go. Can't get my words right today. Uh, But this is a very passionate thing for me. But So number one, I want to outline what exactly the scenarios are on divorce in the New Testament. In other words, these are the two times that God permits divorce laid out in the Bible two times. 
Number one, divorce is permissible. And that's a key word there, permissible. Not mandatory, but permissible. Divorce is permissible when immorality is present in the marriage. So in other words, if your spouse runs off and cheats on you, by the biblical word the, the to the letter, says that divorce is allowed in that case. Now, there's a lot of implications and a lot of what-if scenarios with that. And don't worry, we are going to go over it and go over the verses that support that and talk about that and really get a deeper understanding. But I just wanted to lay it out. Scenario number two, in which God allows divorce. If a believer and an unbeliever are married and the unbeliever walks away from the believer, under that circumstance, divorce is allowed. Once again, we are going to get into the verses that talk about that and support that and get into all these different what-if scenarios. I just want to add a little caveat, something to keep in mind here, because this is a scenario that happens. If there's two believers that get an unbiblical divorce, or in other words, it's not a divorce for one of those two reasons right there, uh, and they're two Christians, they're two believers, because overall, this is who it's addressing. It's addressing believers. So if two believers get an unbiblical divorce, then they are to remain unmarried to anyone else the rest of their lives. Otherwise, they commit adultery. And this is, once again, biblical. And we're going to touch over that, especially in the next verse that we're going to go over. But like I said, just to reiterate, if two believers get an unbiblical divorce that is not outlined in the Bible, they are to remain unmarried the rest of their lives. Otherwise, if they run off and get married to somebody else, they are committing adultery. Now, let's go ahead and pick up some New Testament verses and see what Jesus has to say on the topic of divorce. And there's a couple places that we can go, but I'm specifically going to dive into Matthew uh, chapter 19 and starting at verse 1, because that's really where you get a, a, a large view of what God says on this, what Jesus says on this. So once again, Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 1, and just to go ahead and put it in context, the Pharisees, they're up to no good. They're pestering Jesus again. They're starting to poke and prod and asking some questions and uh, try to get him slipping up, but Jesus doesn't slip up. This is what we go on. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a large crowds, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Verse 3, some Pharisees then came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Uh, you like my Pharisee voice there. But they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So first off, let's examine why are they asking this? Well, number one, if you look at historical references, uh, the, the Pharisees, they loved to divorce. They loved divorce. You even see uh, topics and debates on how uh, the Pharisees would divorce their wives, even over the matter of burning their food. They thought anything that their wives did wrong was a divorceable offense, and they would move on to the next shiny object, which isn't an object at all. It's a woman. It is a woman that is God's creation, but they're not viewed that way by the Pharisees. Like I said, they were viewed as an object. Let's go to verse 4. 
And he said, this is Jesus here, and Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And stop right there at verse 4. This right here is, Jesus is settling the debate. He, he's actually pulling from all the way back in Genesis here. Did you not read that he created them male and female? This throws away any argument for anybody that that thinks they were born a male when really they were born a female or vice versa. God made them male and female. There were no mistakes along the way. You were born the way you were born, the sex you were born, because that's how God made you. He made them male and female. Verse 5, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Once again, Jesus quoting from Genesis. And here you get another thing. One man, one woman joined together. This throws away any argument that people have for, oh, homosexuality is an acceptable life course for a Christian. It is absolutely not. If you read the Bible, this, I mean, this is so plain. This is so plain. One man, one woman joined together. The two become one flesh. It doesn't say one woman or one woman or one man or one man. It says one man, one woman they join together, and that's really talking about sexual relationships right there because that's how God made a man and a woman. When they come together, they join together, and the two become one flesh. God's standard is clear here. And Jesus even adds on here, what God has joined together, let no man separate. This is the standard. This is God's holy standard. It once again echoes back to what we saw in Malachi, that God hates divorce. He doesn't want any of these, these marriage covenants, these marriage vows separated. Why? Well, think about it this way. Marriage serves so many purposes for us. And I went over this in the last episode a little bit. It serves so many purposes that God intended. Uh, companionship, love, procreation, sex. Yes, sex is Something that God gave us that is people don't like to talk about it because they think it's some type of sap, you know, taboo subject. But in reality, sex is a beautiful thing that God gave us between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. But the number one purpose, in my opinion, that I believe God gave us marriage was truly because it is a reflection of Christ and the church. The Christ is always known as the bridegroom and the church is always known as the bride of Christ. Marriage is a reflection of that. There's so many verses that we can go over that actually talk about that. We're, gonna, we're not going to do it today. Otherwise, this podcast is going to be two hours long. But continuing on, verse 6. And this is, this is where we really get. I know I got on some side rants there, but this is where we get into the real meat about divorce here. Verse 6. So they, know are lo- they know are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Verse 7. And then they, the Pharisees, said to him, why then, then, why, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? All right, now stop right there. This shows you, honestly, how hardened the Pharisees' hearts were. They still keeping evil in their hearts as they tried to tiptoe through the law here. What they're saying, look at this. They said, why did Moses command? to give her a certificate of divorce command as if like Moses is telling you implying that Moses is saying, I command you to divorce your wife. If you're not happy with her, divorce her. 
That's what they're essentially trying to say. They're twisting words around here. Like I said, they're trying to keep the law in their own self-righteousness while trying to stick to the letter, but the spirit is not present. Almost like there's a verse for that. (laughs) But if you go on to verse 8, Jesus corrects that notion. And I, I love the way Jesus does this. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted, not Moses commanded, Moses permitted, that's the key word right here, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, and then Jesus is saying, this is, this is the real standard here, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. It was never God's intent. In other words, Jesus is saying, verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. That goes back to that caveat that I said. If two believers uh, divorce for unbiblical reasons, they're supposed to remain unmarried or else they commit adultery. Jesus says it plain right here. And honestly, in this verse, I could just picture in my brain Jesus saying this because he essentially called all the Pharisees adulterers. He just slapped them in the face with his words right here. And either, you know, two things were going to happen. They were either going to feel convicted and repent, which for the most part that we know of, they did not, or they were going to get angry about it because Jesus just proved them wrong. I want to read verse nine again, where Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Think back to what I said. These Pharisees loved divorce. They were constantly divorcing their wives. Jesus, once again, verbally slaps them in the face and calls them adulterers. Jesus makes it so clear here that sexual immorality, and this goes back to really our intent, what is, does the Bible say about biblical divorce? That Jesus says right here, sexual immorality is one just cause for divorce. If two believers end up divorcing, for any other reason, then they must remain single the rest of their lives or be reconciled back to each other. Otherwise, they are committing adultery. You can see this carried through in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where Paul says, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And just to make that clear, Paul is being very, very articulate when he says, These instructions, these aren't from me. These are from the Lord. I'll read it again. But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So this works both ways. It's not, it wasn't just a wife way. It was a husband way too. So we see here our reason number one that we labeled out. Divorce is permissible when immorality is present in the marriage. Now, I said there's a lot of what-ifs with this, and there's a lot of different scenarios that drive this. And like I said, we need to be careful because what can happen in these scenarios is that people will try to use this verse as what I call like a scapegoat. You might ask like, well, what do you mean by a scapegoat verse? Uh, Let me give you a hypothetical scenario. So picture a husband and a wife, you know, they're newly married. They've been married for, you know, just a few years and the sparks are starting to die down. Uh, and the husband runs off, cheats on the wife. Horrible thing. Wife doesn't know about it, but the husband is just being racked by guilt over what he did. 
So he goes and confesses to his wife. He tells his wife what he did. Needless to say, the wife is devastated. Uh, the marriage is a mess. But she decides to forgive them, to forgive him, and to try to get this to work out because she wants her marriage to last. And most importantly, there's a, a child involved because that's so often the case in these scenarios. So they stick it out together. Things are rough. It, it, it's really hard for the wife to, to gain that trust in her husband again. And the next thing you know, let's just say this new new guy starts showing up to church. He's a you know, good-looking guy. He's single. Starts giving the wife, actually, the wife in this scenario, some attention. Well, the wife starts developing feelings for this man. She goes and she opens up her Bible. She's like, oh, I'm in a marriage, though. You know, I can't get divorced. That's bad. The Bible says divorce is bad. She opens up the Bible and she reads in Matthew 19, Jesus says it's okay to get a divorce for a case of immorality. She says, bam, I got it. I got it. I got my way out of this marriage. Oh, yes, finally. And she ends up divorcing her husband and marrying this other guy. Who do you think was doing wrong in this story? Obviously, the, the man is, is horrible what he did. He cheated on his wife. And that never should have happened. He was breaking his marriage vows, his covenant with his wife by sleeping with somebody else. But he did go and seek forgiveness, at least in this story. And let's just say he never went off and cheated on her again during that time. He wanted to make the marriage work. He felt the conviction. But then the wife does pretty much the exact same thing to him. But this time... She tries to use the Bible to justify what she is doing makes it right. Now, to the letter of the word. And when I mean the letter, when you read the plain letters right there, yes, it sounds like she's justified. Jesus said you can divorce if immorality is present. But the key here is what is the spirit of the message? So many times we see Jesus talking about forgiveness. How many times do we run away from God we, we, we say we're his children. We believe in him. We trust him. We call him Lord. What did you say? If you call me Lord, then do what I say. But yet we run off and we sin still. I mean, this is all of us right here. But what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't divorce us. Jesus welcomes us back. He brings us back and he rejoices when we come back into repentance with him. Now, I'm not going to go ahead and try and give you an answer of who was right and who was wrong in this scenario. This is something I want you to think about. This is something I want you to kind of dwell on. When I talk about a scapegoat verse, and, and this is something that only God can truly judge. God knows the heart. Humans, we don't know the heart. Sometimes we can see what's in the heart because, like Jesus said, what's in the heart is going to come out of your mouth. But... We don't see the heart the same way God does. God can look into the deepest reaches of our heart, know our true intent behind our actions. And that's what God is going to look at. That's what I mean when I say you're taking the letter of the word, but you're not doing it with the spirit. God's going to look at that. God's going to know where your heart truly lies and whether or not you're just trying to be like the Pharisee and follow the letter of the law or whether or not your heart is truly repentant and what that situation is. Once again, I say this with the absolute 
sincerity uh, and, and sensitivity, I guess, in a way, because I know this is tough for so many people and so many people, whether they went through it, they experienced it, they're going through it now, or maybe they were a kid who witnessed this. They have seen what divorce does, and it is not an easy thing to see. I can only imagine how horrible that must be. But it's important that we look at these biblical details on what God says in this. Now let's go over what the, we spent a lot of time there, but let's go ahead and take a look at the second case now in the Bible where we see divorce is permitted. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we're going to go ahead and go, and we're going to start at verse 12 here. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth. I, I spend a lot of time on this one, or in this passage, this 1 Corinthians 7, uh, in last episode, because this whole chapter, if you're just listening to this episode, you didn't listen to the first one, 1 Corinthians 7 is an entire chapter dedicated to the topic of marriage, divorce, and singleness. And you can get so much insight out of it. If you haven't gone there and studied it, please do after this. Once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to pick up at verse 12. But to the rest I say, this is the Apostle Paul here, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, and I just want to stop right there. Because Paul wants to make it clear here that God, this is not a command from God, essentially. This is not a commandment that God gave him and told him to give out. He, what he's doing here is he is inserting his own view. But nevertheless, this is sound biblical device. Uh, device. This is sound biblical advice, and it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we can view this as scriptural. We can view this as what God is okay with and allowing. So back to verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother, he's talking about a Christian here, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Then in verse 13, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. All right, so what is verses 12 and 13 saying here? Essentially, You picture two people who are unbelievers, and then let's just say the wife becomes a believer. She hears the gospel message, and she believes. The husband, though, he doesn't. He doesn't want anything to do with it, but he doesn't want to divorce his wife. He wants to stay with her. He wants to stick it out in this marriage, even though he's not a believer. What the Apostle Paul is saying here in this scenario, you must not divorce them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure this is a tough scenario right here because you're talking about unequally yoked. You have a believer married to a non-believer who thinks, you know, whatever you're saying is just a bunch of nonsense. He doesn't believe in it. And I'm not trying to pick on the guys here when I say he. It's just the first thing that's popping in my brain. But they refuse to believe. It's got to be a tough life. But the Apostle Paul is clear. Don't divorce. But let's go into verse 14 here. He gives the reason why. For an unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this is this is kind of referring to, and uh, Bible teacher John MacArthur kind of calls this a Holy Spirit splashover effect in a way. Uh, you essentially, as a believer, you receive blessings from God because you're a believer. You have blessings being poured out on you, blessings that you don't even know you have. 
And when you stay married to your husband that doesn't believe or your wife that doesn't believe, they are partaking in those blessings with you. It's like a splashover effect. You know, when, when someone does a giant cannonball in the pool and you get splashed, it's like a splashover effect of the Holy Spirit. You are being blessed. Your, hus your unbelieving spouse is being blessed through your blessings. Also, it talks about otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. Now, this is not talking about salvation. It's not saying if you divorce, your kids are doomed and they're not going to be uh, um, you know, saved at any point in time. But what he says when it's holy, it's talking about the marriage of the family. They're seeing what a godly marriage looks like. They're being under the protection of what a godly marriage is. Like I said, Satan loves nothing more. I truly believe this. Satan would love nothing more than for people to go ahead and divorce and he can keep influencing children as much as he wants through the media, the school system, and all this stuff. But when you have a good Bible-based family that can block that stuff that's coming from mainstream media and from the government and from the public school system and implant true wisdom, wisdom from God, wisdom how to be a Christian living by biblical standards in them, they can stand strong when they become an adult in the world. And there's so many verses that we could talk about through that. Let's go, just go ahead and read Proverbs or something. Anyways, let's continue on with the rest of our passage here, starting at verse 15 now. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, yet the person who is not a believer, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, and God has called us to peace. And this is our second scenario in which divorce biblically allowed. So let's go ahead and put this, break this down a little bit. So if the unbeliever walks away from the believer, they're married, and the unbeliever just can't take it anymore, and they walk away, in this scenario, you as a believer, it's clear, it's you're not under bondage anymore. So if they decide to give you divorce papers, you are under no obligation to stay in that marriage. But once again, we cannot take this verse out of context because somebody might read this and maybe twist some words around in their head because they're frantically searching for something. It's only when the unbeliever leaves, not the believer. So... If a Christian in this scenario ends up leaving their spouse first, they're the ones who leave and walk away, that Christian is actually in the wrong. And Paul goes over that. Uh, go ahead and go down to verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you, O husband, know whether you will save your wife. So let's go ahead and read that whole passage right now, just to keep the whole thing in context. No breaks throughout, I, I promise. <laughs> but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether or not you will save your husband? Or how do you, O husband, know whether or not you will save your wife. 
So in other words, the Apostle Paul is saying and directing this towards the Christians saying, if your spouse is not a believer and they decide to stick it out with you and stay with you, don't divorce them. Because one, they're going to receive the blessings that you receive, essentially, like I said, that splash over effect. And number two, the most important one is verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, know whether you will save your wife? You could be the tool that God uses to bring that unbeliever to salvation. Then you and your spouse are now believers living in an equally yoked relationship. Can you imagine How amazing that would be that God used you to save your spouse who didn't believe when you believed first. Wouldn't that be amazing? This is why Paul says the unbeliever is the only one who's allowed to exit, I guess, in that scenario. I won't even say allowed. I'll actually put it this way. The believer is not allowed to exit, is not allowed to initiate the exit or the divorce. It's the unbeliever in that scenario is the only one who could leave. So we're nearing the end of this podcast, and I want to address one last topic. And I've tried to record this so many different times, and this is such a tough subject to talk about in this last segment. But some people may, it needs to be addressed. Some people may be asking, why isn't abuse an acceptable reason for the uh, divorce? The Bible is silent on this issue of spousal abuse being a reason for divorce. There's many different reasons that we can go into on why we believe that. And honestly, a lot of that is opinion driven. You can go on YouTube. Alan Parr, if you've never watched YouTube, Alan Parr, strong, solid brother. He has this amazing video on this section and talks about it. Um, Gotquestions.org. If you've never visited that website, it's literally a website that has thousands of questions answered uh, that are about the Bible. It's about Christian walks of life. These questions are answered on there, and they give a great job of giving a biblical answer and giving the verses to support that answer. And yes, they even cover this topic of spousal abuse uh, and divorce. But at the end of the day, the Bible doesn't say that abuse is an acceptable reason for divorce. And I want to say this with the most sincerity that I can possibly say. Number one, if you are being abused, you need to separate from that relationship. I didn't say divorce, but you need to separate from your that relationship. I mean physically get out of there. You need to put separation in between you and your abuser, especially if you have children involved. Children need to be removed from that environment. The Bible always considers reconciliation in marriage. I, I truly believe that. And we talked about that, and I hope you got that out of this message when it comes to all these different topics that I truly believe God would rather see your marriage reconciled, even in the case of abuse. But we do know that when abuse is present in a marriage, and once you get that separation, reconciliation is 100% on the abuser. They need to get with God, and they need to come to terms of the horrible actions that they did and seek forgiveness from God. On top of that, reconciliation for the person being abused, 
is a much different subject. It's going to be much tougher. Number one, you should not return back to that relationship unless you are 100% certain that this won't happen again. Like I said, and I, and I, maybe I didn't even go far enough. If you are being abused, you need to separate. You need to call the authorities. The police need to be notified. You need to get out of there. And I know many times the people being abused, they're afraid of where are they going to go? What are they going to do? Look for a family member. Look for a safe place. Talk to people. There's different websites out there that cover this and talk about the different resources that are available to you as an abuse spouse for you and your kids. Go somewhere. Just get separated from that person that is abusing you. Now, with all that being said, like I said, the Bible doesn't specifically talk about divorce being permissible in cases of abuse. But I do want to point out that the Bible is clear on what marriage is, and abuse has absolutely nothing to do with that marriage. There is nothing in the Bible that should make you believe that God would want you to sit there and be abused. Like I said, separation needs to happen. There is nothing unbiblical about separating yourself and your children from being abused. I want to read to you something from that gotquestions.org website when they talked about this. And this is very key right here. They said, and this is when it comes to the whole reconciliation part, if the abuser demonstrates verifiable change, independently confirmed, meaning other people are are attesting to this and you yourself can attest to this, you've prayed over this, this relationship may be resumed, but with much caution. Both the husband and wife must commit themselves to God's path and develop their relationship with God through Christ. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me and teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set my heart on your laws. Psalm 119, 29-30. This commitment to God should be accompanied by intensive counseling from a trusted pastor or believing licensed counselor or like a biblical type counselor. The counseling should be taken first individually, then as a couple, and finally as an entire family, as all need help healing. Change is possible for an abusive person who truly repents and is humbly surrendered to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is a verse there. I want to leave you off with what they last said in this tough scenario. And like I said, my sympathy is for you. Please seek help if you are being abused. But I want to leave you off with what gotquestions.org says at the end of this statement uh, of their answer question. It says, if you are in an abusive relationship or situation right now, whether the abuser is a spouse, parent, child, caretaker, teacher, relative, or anyone else, please know that God does not want you to remain in that situation. It is not God's will for you to accept physical, sexual, or psychological abuse. Leave the situation. Find someone to help you stay safe. Involve law enforcement immediately. And through it all, pray for God's guidance and protection. Let's go ahead and end this out in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for everything that you do, Lord. And we've covered some very tough subjects today that have affected so many people, whether it would be through divorce or through sexual immorality or having an unbelieving spouse or even, Lord, your spouse abusing you, whether it be physically, verbally, sexually, in any type of way, Lord. We covered so many 
topics, Lord, please give these people the victims, the clarity, the understanding of your word. Please, Lord, I pray for them. I pray that they they get these scenarios fixed. Lord, for the people who are committing these sins, Lord, I pray that they seek after you and seek forgiveness from you and their heart is truly changed. And overall, Lord, that we see marriages come together. We know you've laid out your plans, Lord, in your word, in the Bible, on what's permissible, what's not permissible. But the main thing that we know, Lord, that you wish to see marriages that are falling apart be reconciled. Because you're not going to leave us, Lord. Your word says so, and we know that to be true. We want to follow your example, Lord. I pray for all these people listening to this, Lord, that they're just blessed through this, that they get resources through this, Lord. And I pray that you can use this message wherever you need it, Lord. Thank you so much for all that you do. Your will alone, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.